Welcome to Super Responders, the practical podcast helping us navigate difficult conversations about things that matter. I'm Molly, I'm the host, and I'm on a journey to build my toolkit to start calling out injustice where I see it and build confidence to have these hard conversations about things that matter. Whether it's about climate change, gender, racism, homophobia, change starts the conversation. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Ghana people and the Nanawal people. We pay respect to elders past and present. The sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to this episode of Super Responders, where we'll be talking about how to respond to common misconceptions and some harmful comments that we hear about women in leadership. I'm having this discussion as a white, able-bodied, cisgendered woman in Australia, so that's going to frame my reference and experiences. And I'm here today with Dr. Blair Williams. Blair, are you happy to introduce yourself? Hi, yes. So I'm a research fellow with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, and I predominantly look at women politicians and women political leaders and their uh, gendered or sexist media coverage, both in Australia, but also uh, in New Zealand and the UK as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for coming on and helping us out with how to respond to some of these things in conversation. Uh, So as usual, I'm going to be firing some of these things that I've heard at barbecues or um, from family, from friends, and might not have been able to respond to them. Um, So wondering if we can have your help. The first one is women are just too emotional to lead. How might we, (laughs) what do we say to that? (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting one about emotions. I guess my first response, my first thought to that is why do we see women as emotional, but men's emotions as something that is not like doesn't is not considered an emotion. So like a lot of um, leadership stereotypes, you know, like masculine leadership stereotypes are very much to do with, uh, you know, an adversarial nature, aggression, even Um, sometimes, you know, male leaders can be quite angry and, and all these kinds of, you know, emotions, but we don't really classify them as emotional, which is often in our, in our society stereotyped as something that women display. And and that is usually related to things like crying or being hysterical. And obviously, you know, that word is, you know, from, uh, you know, essentially to do with the reproductive system, you know, and those kinds of ideas and stereotypes aren't really put on men, but they are put on women. And we constantly hear this, you know, they're too emotional to lead, they're they're too whatever to lead. Um, But, you know, we have to look at the fact that you know, are they too emotional to lead or is it our preconceived ideas of what emotion is and emotion isn't? Should we look at men in a more emotional light? Should we open up our idea of what emotion and emotionalness is? So I think it's quite a nuanced topic to explore. In terms of like a quick response to someone saying that, I'd mostly just ask a question back at them like, oh, what do you see, you know, as something that's too emotional? Or why do you say that? Or, you know, do you see something similar in your male bosses or or something like that to to try and uh, get them to critically analyze why they said what they said? Yeah, I love that. I love being able to just say, well, what do you mean by emotional? Because I guess, yeah, Mm. as you said, we do, we talk about usually emotional being potentially, I don't know, yeah, his women being hysterical or there's, mm. I've heard think people say, oh, it's that time of the month and they can't control their yep. emotions or things like that. But I mean, yeah, what emotions are we talking about? Because if it's, if we're connecting anger and this assertiveness or things like that with leadership, then 
yeah, is that is that what we want to be doing? Mm-hmm. So, of all the political leaders, I mean, we you, know, you look at Trump back in the day when he was president. Thank God, not anymore. <laughs> and you really look at him and go, yeah, not emotional at all. He's totally fine. Like you know. What he did a lot of the time, particularly his outbursts, are emotional. Like, that is emotion. I mean, I don't necessarily think emotion is bad. Obviously, in the way that Trump did it, not the best. Uh, (laughs) That's more because of, you know, what he was emotional about and and how he was using his emotions and his anger to try and, you know, score or do some, you know, uh, political point scoring, essentially. Um, But, you know, you hear a lot less people say that he's he's too emotional to lead or other male leaders are too emotional to lead, whereas their um, women counterparts, you know, women leaders in other countries who, you know, display different styles of leadership are seen as so-called too emotional simply because they're women. Yeah. I love the idea of just questioning. Questioning what do you mean by too emotional and giving that example, as you just said, there are so many different examples of male leaders being very emotional, but it's not in the way that maybe this person that's saying the comment to be a bit hurtful means. How about comments about particularly female leaders? I've heard this with politicians, but talking about how annoying women's voices are. Oh, yeah. I mean, Julie Gillard got that all the time. You know, our first woman prime minister was constantly harassed um, by both those in the media, but also, you know, around Australia for her annoying accent or annoying voice, which, yeah, again, as you said, is just another thing that is used against women in leadership positions. I mean, your voice is not something you can really control. And and is is their voice really annoying or are you just, you know, kind of, I guess, not used to hearing women's voices in leadership positions? I mean, perhaps if that accent's a bit different to what you're used to, then it might just be different. But is it really annoying or is that just something that you kind of it's kind of reinforced through repeating saying like through through the repetition of saying that's annoying and then other people hear that and then it's kind of just this assumed thing that it is annoying yeah it's I guess it's our internal biases and saying mm-hmm. we're not we're not used to hearing women in yeah in leadership positions in speaking as much and so maybe I, I wonder if like explaining to people that I mean, as humans, we do often respond better to we consider deeper voices as more authoritative. It's been like many studies that say that, but I guess it's just checking those biases. So maybe saying. But is that socially, like, is that socially learned thing? Or is that saying that's innate? Is it innate that we prefer deeper voices? Or is it just because we've historically and, and continue, you know, we continue to do so, um, relate you know, deeper voices with authority because men have traditionally been in leadership roles, you know? Like, is it because women haven't really been allowed to be, you know, in leadership positions as your boss or or whatever because of, you know, the patriarchy and what that's resulted in? So perhaps, again, it's one of those learned associations. Yeah. So if we, I I guess if someone says that, if we notice someone saying that or just talking about someone's voice, we can maybe questioning maybe that's a fun fact to be like, oh, well, do you think it's just a, is this a learned behavior or can we check ourselves next time? Or why do you think her voice is annoying? Mm, yeah. What about the voice is annoying? Yeah. It's just something interesting to, again, like um, scrutinize. Yeah. Really. What about commenting on female leaders clothing? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very common one. I mean, in my research, I noted, in my research, I examining the media coverage of women in political leadership. I noticed that the that newspapers covered their appearance, particularly what they wore a lot. 
like a lot too too much i think it was in around like one third of articles kind of commented on what they're wearing or how they looked which is just kind of ridiculous when you know they're just trying to do their bloody jobs so <laughs> what does you know what what does what they're wearing have to do with that and why we're looking at that so much but it's true i mean we do kind of still have that male gaze towards uh women in general but particularly women in leadership positions because you know the importance that women's appearance still has in our society, you know, in our patriarchal society, sorry, it's socially constructed. But yeah, I mean, what does their outfits have to do with their role? Um, as long as obviously you're, you're dressed professionally in terms of the, the norms around your your workplace and, and workplace outfits, then then what is it to, to anyone really? That's so true. So I wonder if you can say, that's a, that's a great question to put it and be like, oh, well, what does this have to do with what they're talking about and mm. putting it back on them, whoever's made a comment about that. I also remember Julie Gillard saying in our interview that when she was Deputy Prime Minister, her and Tony Abbott would constantly go on, um, I think it was Channel 7 or Channel 9 or one of the morning shows, and she'd have to get there like two hours before the show started for hair and makeup, where uh, Tony Abbott would waltz in and like 20 minutes beforehand and get a bit of powder to make up shows not shiny and then go on screen, essentially. And again, no one really comments on that. So it's all the ways that these things take time out of our day. And so if you say comments like, what is she wearing? Or, you know, she looks X, Y, Z or whatever. It, it kind of, you know, affirms the idea that women have to spend, like waste time in our day uh, to, to look a certain way. Or if we don't, then we're not legitimate enough or we're not, you know, leadership-like enough or whatever. Yeah. And, and I mean, what does that say to young female aspiring leaders Uh, and that's I'm hesitant to ever take speaking positions anywhere because I know of I know how people will look and be like oh she's wearing that and I know the pressure of being that leader and unfortunately it's just that extra baggage that comes with fighting up up the ladder as a woman Mm -hmm. but yeah especially in the corporate world I've noticed is a lot more strict yeah (laughs) in terms of clothing norms uh, for women, you can't just wear a suit. We don't have a uniform in the workplace. And as leaders, you have to try and figure it out for yourself. You know, do you wear a pantsuit or a skirt suit or, or what kind of clothes do you address? A nice dress? I don't know. But men, get, whack a seat on, you're done. So I guess to respond to, you know, someone saying that, I guess you should, yeah, make them, I guess questions are, are kind of the thing, isn't it? Um, you know, ask them, you know, would you say that about a male boss or a man in leadership? If not, why not? Um, I mean, what purpose does it serve to comment on someone's appearance, um, particularly a, woman, a woman's appearance, given what we know, in, you know, about, you know, appearance and, and commenting on that in a patriarchal society and the ramifications that can have, um, not just for those women that you're commenting on, but for all the women you know, around you that hears that, particularly girls and, and the norms that that kind of contributes to. That is perfect. I feel very, very prepared for the next barbecue when that comes up or <laughs> when we're watching TV with my parents or something. <laughs> what about comments about politicians particularly having or not having children? It's an interesting one, parenthood uh, and family life. Yeah, so... You know, I mean, coming back to my research again in politics, because I think that is also useful to look at in in terms of other areas as well. Women in leadership positions in politics or just women in politics in general, like women anywhere existing, uh, constantly get the question, you know, do you have kids? 
If not, why not? And if you do, then why aren't you with them? You know, so it's kind of like this double bind where women just can't bloody win. You know, because because everyone, particularly women, are expected to have children, if they don't, then they're seen as, you know, like illegitimate women, essentially, or they don't relate to the public or, you know, they don't know the full possibilities of life or whatever people say about about children and, and having children. But then if they do have children, it's, you know, they're, they're seen as selfish bitches for not staying home to look after them because obviously women's only job in, in life is to look after children rather than, you know, have careers and, and lives as well as that. So it's interesting seeing that um, double bind, whereas for men, and again, going back to politics, I mean, both our prime minister and the treasurer, uh, so Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, have young children. And I think it was the 2019 election or just beforehand in the, in the campaign, uh, a woman journalist asked them, so who's staying home with the kids? Who's looking after the kids? And they were like, what? I don't know how to answer this question. What is this question? Uh, what? I, I, I can't compute. You know, they, they just never had that question asked to them that they didn't respond like my wife ago, like duh, because it's just assumed that men's partners look home, look, look after the kids while men, you know, can be in politics. They can be in leadership and have little children and never receive those questions or that judgment like women experience um, at the same time. So again, it's this gender double standard that we're witnessing. And I mean, do kids, is it really that relevant to their ability to do their job, like if they do or if they don't, you know, like men men can do their jobs just as fine if they do or if they don't have children. So so why are we looking at differently to, to mothers? Aside from obviously acknowledging the fact that parents in general do need a little bit more support and flexibility to look after their children, but that should not be something that's solely put on the mothers. You know, it should be on on all parents. Absolutely. <laughs> all I, I wonder if asking males in that situation the same thing so if you are a journalist or making sure that you are if you're going to ask a woman like check yourself would you ask a male this question yeah would you ask any of that question it's like it's, it's personal man it's yeah, private business absolutely and <laughs> does, does, it, ask with kids? does it matter <laughs> yeah so i think again just interrogate that under like that idea of you know, I mean, A, why do you need to know if they do or don't have children? I mean, <laughs> what they do with the, with their reproductive system is their choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and two, I mean, does it have an impact on, on their ability to do their job? Yeah. Um, I'd say probably not that much. I mean, aside from obviously the fact that being a parent is hard mm. and parents need support. Um, but that's, again, a separate issue, I think. I guess as the responder, you can change that narrative to being gender neutral. You have the control to say, mm-hmm. well, generally parenting is difficult. I wonder if a man would have the same impact or ask the same questions yeah. and things like that. That's good one. Yeah, or, you know, men have been doing it forever, so why can't women? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This one maybe is of a similar ilk. Uh, <laughs> women should just return to whether it's the kitchen or these are like particularly harmful, I guess, but. Yeah, make me a sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) What do do we say to things like that? Is that worth our time? Yeah. Usually those comments, at least in my experience or, you know, from what I've seen are made as a kind of like sick joke, if that makes sense. Like, no, it's not a ha-ha funny joke. It's like, I don't know, a quip to try and cut you down or to, to make light of the situation or belittle what you're saying. You know, so oftentimes, you know, when I'm talking about feminism or equality or whatever, some people will be like, oh, you should just get back into the kitchen and make me a sandwich or whatever. And it's like, okay, what does that add to this conversation, man? Like, what's the point of saying that? Why are you saying that? 
yeah, it's just a bit like, you. I guess an eye roll and like, okay, cool. Like <laughs> or maybe explain why that's funny. I don't know. Usually it is trying to be in that jesting, jokey, I mean, bad jokey kind of manner. So it's a bit different to the, to the other examples provided. Mm. What do you think? I mean, you've experienced that, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely I've experienced it. But, and yeah, no, I think I, I agree. Just being able to say, even asking them to repeat it, and it may, maybe mm-hmm. being just pretending you didn't hear and asking them to repeat yeah, that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, what? And then they have to like stop, repeat it, and then maybe hear that it's really stupid. Or I think, yeah, an eye roll and just being like, oh, are we still doing that? Yeah. Like verbally. Just, <laughs> yeah, just get back to it. Yeah, that's, yeah, nah, we're over that now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll take that long to, to try and. Uh, stop that one. <laughs> Absolutely. What about male leaders tend to have just more authority? Mm. Again, I think that goes back to like society and and stereotypes of of what leadership is and and what leaders look like and sound like. Um, and probably does go back to that that voice thing that we associate, as we talked about before, with leaders. Um, you know, the the deep voice with leaders and and a higher voice as not leadership like. Um, whether they're both more authority, I mean, that's a hard one to, to, count, to counteract because of the ingrained, you know, like stereotypes and norms in our society that are based on gendered lines. Because when you look around, you know, a, a majority of leaders are men, more than a majority, especially if you look at the private sector um, or, you know, politics. So you kind of do see that like authority or that masculine kind of authority. But I think that you know, it's not impossible for women to have authority too. We just need to have more women in leadership positions. We need to normalise that, um, really. So, I mean, to counteract that one, I don't know. I guess, again, like, why do you think that is? Yeah. Like, what is it about yeah. men that makes them have, like, what is it about men that you think makes them have more authority? Yeah, because I guess once you can, once they, you can get them to prompt and kind of dissect those stereotypical male traits that might be linked to authority I guess we can tackle them one-on-one but ultimately Mm. the argument is the same maybe as the voice one and like the history of leadership unfortunately has been dominated by men so do you think it's I don't know is it fair or I don't know how I think a lot of it is a social construct I mean research has shown research and leadership um both like in the private and public sectors have shown that more stereotypically feminine leadership styles like compassion, collaboration, uh, compromise, all the C's actually, (laughs) you know, like leading rather than top down, more like collaborative, more even level, equal level kind of leadership styles actually do better. And companies that have that, that, that kind of leadership style or understanding of leadership or, you know, having women that do that do fare better than come than companies that don't so i mean the research does show that that women make really good leaders and i mean obviously not only women are, are limited to that kind of leadership style men can do it too but it, all research does show that that is quite successful and i think you can see that recently as well with um covid and the response to covid i mean look at jacinda Ardern in the uh, new zealand and, and her response to covid which again is quite compassionate she's very much compassionate led as well as collaborative and and very effective communication and that's been far more effective in 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 terms of dealing with covid than say boris johnson in the uk who was uh, you know massively stereotypically masculine style of leadership and not just masculine style but like 
what they call an elite masculinity. So like a private school rich boy style of, you know, masculine leadership style. That was, you know, very top down, very much like I'll tell you what to do or not communicate or, you know, those kinds of things. And that was quite terrible. You know, they had one of the highest death rates essentially in the world a massive amount of cases considering the, the population size. So countries like that, you know, like the UK, the US, Brazil with, you know, Yerba uh, Sonero, Modi in India. I mean, you have all these instances where strongman styles of leadership are really not that effective, whereas more uh, so-called stereotypically feminine styles of leadership do seem to be more effective on average. So I think, yeah, maybe our, leadership, maybe our understandings of leadership can actually change with this, with what's happening. But it also goes to show, I mean, perhaps if you want to respond to someone who says that, you can go, well, look at Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. She seems to be doing pretty bloody well with her, you know, with her style. So, and she does have authority. It's just a different understanding of authority to what has been the norm. So rather than authoritarian, it's more respected and trusted. I love that. I love using examples. I think that's a really powerful response to that. And Jacinda Ardern is obviously such a popular goals. Yeah, <laughs> absolute goals. Um, that's a, no, I love that. So either dissecting what they understand to be authoritative and maybe picking out that mm-hmm. as separate issues, but just providing examples of really positive female leaders and like so you don't find them to be effective in what they're doing now and what they've continued to do and And if they don't find them effective you can be like well here's the stats (laughs) yeah and that was yeah that's exactly right the research is out there and we can link that to Mm -hmm. listeners yeah everything is saying that those more feminine styles of leadership traditionally feminine styles of leadership are how we see it yeah yeah It's how it's more effective. So another one. I've had this a lot in the private industry. I'm sh- I'm not sure. I'm going to assume that it might be similar everywhere, unfortunately. How do we act and how do we counteract women insulting female leaders? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, yeah, and it is everywhere. Because, yeah, I was just reading Julie Gillard's book she published last year women in leadership and she has a whole chapter about I think she called it there's a special place in hell for women who tear down other women or something something like that which is a, a quote from Madeleine Albright about you know women, women in politics and women supporting other women which is extremely important but yeah I mean it's hard to call it's harder I think sometimes to call out women who who say this kind of stuff because I feel like some of the time some of the times women think that it's okay because they're a woman. So, you know, they can make those comments. It's like, well, I get it. Like I'm a lady, whatever. And it's like, okay, but what you're saying is still pretty gendered and and can still reinforce those norms and internalized misogyny is a thing. And, you know, it helps uphold the patriarchy, um, which does no one like of any gender, uh, any kind of service, you know, or privilege. Um, So, yeah, I think again, kind of questioning those women on why they said that or or why they think that or, you know, how would they feel if that was said about them or, yeah, or that, you know, we should band together because, like, the patriarchy sure as hell is going to try and fight us down. So why are we, why are we not trying to help each other? Why, are we, why would we want to make each other's lives even harder? We are not uh, each other's direct competition. I mean, under, you know, in a patriarchal society, it kind of depends on women seeing as, Seeing, women seeing other women as direct competition, women fighting against other women because divide and conquer works. And if women are continuously fighting each other, then it's a lot harder to fight 
the power structure of, you know, patriarchy essentially, which is, you know, a bit shit (laughs) because we should be banding together to try and destroy that and to try and have equality for everyone. So I think, yeah, we should, again, as I say, question that, kind of interrogate why they said that, how they'd feel if that was said about them, um, what is the purpose of saying that? And like, even if you think that, then maybe just not even air it. Like that can be a thought for your head. Yeah, that's, uh, (laughs) I've definitely experienced that. And I think, because we are, yeah, this, we're socialized to have so much internalized misogyny. I feel like I have. And I feel like I began my career in looking at other female graduates as competition. And then slowly, like within the more and more I researched and kind of found feminism, I started to realize that, oh my goodness, we have it so hard individually. Why am I taking the time to outperform this one person when I can have an ally? I can have an, we can all be allies and all work together for this event to happen or this to happen. And I like what you said about internalizing it because even now I think I find I still struggle with that, seeing other women as competition. It's kind of just my first inherent response, but literally feeling it, acknowledging it, and then countering it. Now I feel it and it's almost immediate being like, oh, jealousy, let's flip it around and how can I support this other woman to achieve her dreams and also how can we be allies? And it's hard to unlearn that kind of stuff because we have been, you know, it's ingrained in us. We have been conditioned to kind of think that way or see see other women in that way. And, I mean, your feelings legitimate I mean you can feel that way but then I think you know to do the work inside yourself so unpack why why do you feel threatened why do you feel jealous I mean it's okay to feel jealous but you just I mean you don't have to act on those feelings you you know feelings are okay as as themselves on their own but it's what you do or how you act on them that counts so you can think about it and go well hang on a minute that's probably you know something that's ingrained into me um, in the society Uh, why do I think that way Um, maybe I shouldn't think that way and and let's try and instead support fellow women even if you do feel jealous or even if you do feel threatened or whatever I think it very much takes that kind of conscious decision making or you know an act on your part to, to try and not follow through and not uphold that kind of system you are in control of your own actions ultimately yeah Sometimes like your thoughts, because your thoughts, you know, are kind of socially conditioned, but but your actions is, mm-hmm. is how you've responded. It, it's your actual, you know, I guess the first is like kind of the subconscious or something, and mm. the second one is is you taking charge, and I think that speaks more about yourself than than the thought itself. Yeah, that makes sense. the thought itself, you can like deal that with that. Like that's your psychologist's problem. Like you can unpack that <laughs> and pay to have that done. But yeah, mm-hmm. I guess the, what the actions are harmful and that's when other people get mm-hmm. hurt and impacted. Yeah. Have you ever heard people calling any women in leadership a bit of a bitch or an ice queen? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have, cause I, I've researched a lot of it. A lot of the media coverage and, I mean, quite a lot. It's kind of inferred that they were bitchy or, I mean, unemotional, ironically to what I said before, that they're too emotional. I mean, they can't win again. You're either emotional or not emotional enough. And and oftentimes you're both. You're both too emotional and cold. And it's like, what do you want from me? Um, but, I mean, I remember researching Theresa May, who was the Prime Minister of the UK before Boris Johnson. And 
a lot of the coverage would call her Maybot because her last name May and Robot Bot kind of thing um, because she was cold and robotic. So they constantly say that kind of stuff. Or with Julia Gillard, they'll say that, you know, she was cold, she was a bit of a bitch or, you know, witch even, <laughs> ditch the witch, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so it is a frequent trope in the media coverage of women in politics in particular, but you do also hear it like in everyday life. You know, a lot of the times people will say, oh, you know, my, my boss is a bit of a bitch or she's a bit cold or, you know, like what an ice queen. I mean, it is sadly too common to hear people say that kind of stuff about their women bosses. I mean, it, the words and terminology, I don't think I've really heard them being used like a man being called a bitch or is there a male no, equivalent no. to bitch? Like. A bastard, but again, that has different connotations. I mean, swear words and a lot of slurs are very much steeped in misogyny. So if you think of a lot of swear words, it's very much used against women or genitalia. I mean, yeah, you do have dick and you do have that kind of stuff, but it's not the same as, you know, the C word, for example, or um, you're bitch and bastard, but bastard is kind of not, it's kind of gendered, but not really. It's more, you know, um, a, a child born to like unwed parents or something where bitch is something that still stings a lot and that is kind of steeped in misogyny. And, I mean, yeah, it can be used against men. I mean, it can be used particularly against effeminate men or or gay men, but, again, that's kind of misogyny. Homophobia and misogyny, again, are quite interlinked and and used together sometimes. So you do see that, but what kind of equivalent do we hear for male leaders? I don't know. I mean, he's a bastard or he's a dick, whatever, but people still see him as having authority and as being legitimate, even if they don't like him. You know, he, bosses frequently can yell or be horrible to, to their staff. Not that they should be, obviously, it's not exactly good, but they won't be treated the same way for doing that as a woman colleague. Uh, sorry, a woman in the same position, like a woman leader. I wonder, so if someone says that to you, if they're saying, oh, she's such a bitch. I wonder if you can just be there like thesaurus or something and say, or break it down for them and say, oh, like, oh, sorry, was she being a bit this? Or I can't even think of an example. Like, I mean, it's kind of, uh, yeah, going back to language, I mean, in the last 10 years there's been a lot of understanding of like language and terms that are either misogynistic or ableist, ableism in particular, you know, and and if you don't want to hurt people, if you want to, you know, try and get rid of those ableist words or misogynistic words or racist words in your language because, yeah, you don't want to hurt people, you don't want to reinforce those stereotypes and, and, and harmful language norms, then you do have to kind of, you know, look up in a thesaurus. And I've done that a lot of times because it is so ingrained in your language. Yeah. I mean, I remember when the R word was used all the time or or everyone's saying that's so gay in like the late 2000s, you know, yeah. and it's like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, I remember my mum used to say to me a lot when I was in high school, why are you saying like, what is gay bad? Like, what, what are you trying to say there? What do you mean? And I'm like, mum, everyone uses the term. Oh my God, yeah. don't understand. <laughs> but, she's like, but it's mean and it's homophobic. And I'm like, it's not like that. Yeah. You know, it's just like of like, well, why are you saying this? And what do you think, like, what does it mean to you? Yeah. Um, and it's a term you can actually use that isn't offensive to other people. I love that. Like, to I guess if you have the time, yeah, it's saying, oh, well, oh, is bitch the right word to use? Maybe maybe 
they did seem a bit argumentative in that way, or maybe they're a bit curt in the way they said this to you, mm-hmm. and that hurt. Oh, what do you mean by bitch? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Describe like, what do you mean by that? What happened? Yeah. You know, what was the purpose of that? Or, you know, yeah, trying to turn it back onto the the gendered double standards of would you say that to about your male boss or would you say that about a man? Yeah. If not, why not? That's a good one. I love, I think a lot of this is about like coming up with questions and just basically putting out a little bit of a mirror, just being like, deflect. So the final one, which uh, is a very fresh one from my weekend is people make fun of male leaders too. I guess people call male, like particularly politicians, people call male politicians names as well. People make fun of Abbott's budgie smugglers as well. What do we say to that? I got that a lot during my PhD from colleagues of mine. People in political science were like, mm, but men get this too. And, you know, because Donald Trump came in in 2016, which was my second year, everyone was like, but look at Trump. He gets so much commentary about his appearance. And I'm like, yes, it happens to men too, but it only happens when they go against the norm. It only happens when they're an anomaly. It doesn't happen about the gen- the generic suit. It doesn't happen to most men in politics unless they go out of the norm unless they, you know, kind of buck the trend or do something different. So do people comment on Tony Abbott's appearance when it's not in relation to his budgie smugglers or some kind of weird outfit? No, they don't. Not really. You know, most commentary about his appearance was definitely about his budgie smugglers and his choice to wear that. And you look at other politicians in Australia or leaders. I mean, Prime Minister in the 90s, Paul Keating, was often often had his appearance talked about because he cho- chose to wear Italian wool suits. And that was a bit like, ooh, a bit oh. fancy. And then he kind of you know, said he was like either gay or, you know, was um, quite vain or a dandy or whatever. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, there we go, stereotypes of, of what men can and can't do, which, you know, obviously it harms men too. Or, you know, Donald Trump with his orange tan, but people didn't really comment on other male leaders if they kind of did fit the norm, you know, or Boris Johnson and his mock of hair, uh, again, something that wasn't exactly the norm. And, and he's kind of also used as his kind of persona. Like he very much plays it up. And I think Donald Trump played it up too. his, you know, loose suits. He never changed it, never changed his hair or his tan, despite that being commented on. These men very much use it as part of their image, as part of bucking the system or going against the norm, which populist leaders like Johnson, uh, Johnson and Trump tried to do. But with women, women in leadership, women in politics, women everywhere, really, often have their appearance commented on, whether they try to or not, you know? They don't have to wear body smugglers to be commented on. They can just exist in their body and they're commented on. And that's where it gets really sinister. It's like, we A, we can't win if we're too pretty or feminine or too you care too much about appearance or, you know, we're, we're seen as vain and frivolous if we're not fashionable enough, if we aren't pretty, if we, you know, don't care about our appearance, whatever, then we're seen as sloppy. And it's kind of taken as a as a judgment on how effective we are at our roles, which is ridiculous. So we can't win. And again, we don't really have the uniform of the suit to to fall back on where men do. We have to kind of navigate uh, appearance for ourselves and even though we still get comments no matter what so that's the difference I'd say I'd say yeah the only men who you know who experience commentary are those who buck the trend not all men we rarely hear about men and their generic blue suits <laughs> uh, when they're giving speeches you know it just isn't a thing 
So obviously it is generally happening less and it's usually only when they do step out of the norm, but Mm -hmm. women face it a lot more. A lot more and it's a lot more insidious and sexist and it, yeah, it's just takes up a lot of bandwidth and a lot of time that could be focused on other things, other more important things. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, that has been very, very informative. I feel like I am ready to become a super responder in responding to (laughs) women in uh, any kind of hurtful comment about um, women in leadership. So I really, really appreciate you coming and explaining about how harmful these comments can be and also giving us suggestions in how we can respond to it. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? Yeah, it is hard to call people out, but as long as you, you know, kind of think these things through or or think about them for yourself, it it, it becomes easier if you feel more confident in your understanding of of these ideas or, or, you know, what you're calling out. And again, the more you kind of respond to people in these ways, the the easier it does get. It might be a bit nerve wracking at the start, but it becomes easier and easier. And I mean, if you you really do want to try and respond to people more and try and help change those around you, I'd start off with those, with someone you can trust really. And practice on them, basically. Like for me, it was my mum and my sister. It was a lot easier responding to them than it is, you know, dickheads on the internet or or uh, people in your, your university tutorial or people who you work with. I mean, that's a bit harder because you're not as familiar with those people. But, yeah, I think it's something good to do because it's a way we can kind of change or make change or help to create change in our small little areas of society. That's amazing. I really, really appreciate especially what you said about picking. We don't have to yet start calling out people on the street for this actions, just start with where you feel safest and whether it's someone that you love or your family or close friends, that's where you can start to assert yourself or just be a bit soft but challenging and then work up to becoming, if you want to become a super or maybe that's where change does happen is with these conversations with your family. Yeah, I think a lot of change does happen that way. And also, I mean, this whole thing is really a process where, you know, we're all on different journeys in terms of how we, how much we know about this or how confident we are about this or, you know, where we are. And responding to someone or responding to something that's you know, inappropriate or harmful or misogynistic or whatever is a good step. And we just also, I guess, have to remember that not everyone's at the same stage that we are, but that calling someone out can help them in a process as well. Like when I was younger and I was less aware on issues such as racism um, and, you know, um, like other forms of oppression, I found it really useful when someone kind of responded to, to what I said that might have been a bit inappropriate and, and explained why. And I was like, oh shit, I never thought about it that way. Like, thank you. It's my privilege that hinders me from seeing these things because, you know, to those who experience privilege, it's kind of like unseen, right? But when someone goes out to you or, or shows you, then, then it very much draws your attention to it and you can try and improve from there. So I do kind of see it like that, that it is helpful for the people that you're responding to as well as people you know more generally but that you know responding to people shouldn't necessarily be as heat like it should be heaps heated unless you want to like have a full-blown argument go ahead um but i find just like the you know casual conversation to be quite useful because you're not intimidating someone and you're not trying to scare someone or or cut someone down it's more just like hey man here's an alternative or here's like why that might be a bit harmful and it very much helps that dialogue because, yeah, we're all in a different stage of, of this kind of process and we might not all have that knowledge that you might have or someone else might have or whatever. But helping people get to the diff- like to, to 
further, I guess, their, their stage is, is a good thing, if it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bringing them along on the journey too and making them feel like it's okay to that they didn't know as well. Like it's, I mean. Yeah. We all screw up, you know. Yeah. Like that's part of being human and that's part of learning and developing. I mean, you often don't really change or you don't really grow or, or learn if you don't screw up. I think sometimes mistakes help you learn even more and, and become even better. I mean, because at the end of the day, the goal is to to be less harmful to those around you and to ensure that you don't hurt like already oppressed groups of people. So yeah, it's, it's a good stage and, and process to go on. Yeah. Well, thank you very much again for sharing with us and helping us to empower ourselves in having these conversations and if our listeners want to find out any more information or any of your works where can they go yeah Blair Williams and you just google that and you'll find my website essentially that has my research but yeah I also write for the conversation and the Canberra Times here in Canberra about these kind of things because I think it's important not to just keep this I, this knowledge and research in academia, which is only accessible to those in academia, you know, students and, and academics, but to bring it out to the general public as well, because that's where change is created. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Watch my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> Heck yeah. No, thank you so much. It's just been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah. we'll speak to you again soon. Sounds great. That's been another episode of Super Responders. Thanks for tuning in. And for your patience, I'm on a learning journey. So if there's something that we've missed during this episode or if there's any way we can be better, then please just let us know. So please get in touch. There's a feedback form in our Instagram bio. And if you like the show, please follow us on Instagram at super.responders or send us a note at superresponders or one word at gmail.com and like and subscribe wherever you listen. Heck, you might even want to give us a review and that would be amazing. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Super Responders, the podcast. We'll see you there.